The following program is paid for by Rudy Wealth Management. Good morning, and welcome to Paul Rudy's On the Money. You're invited to be part of today's show. Call 356-9397. Opinions and views expressed represent those of the guests and do not necessarily represent those of the station. And now, Paul Rudy's On the Money. Good Tuesday morning, everybody. This is Paul Rudy with Paul Rudy's On The Money Radio Show. I'm here with my regular guest, Dr. Fred Gertz. Dr. Fred, good to see you. Good to be here. I have a lot for you today. Okay. And certified financial planner, professional Ryan Repko. Ryan, I have things, things for you, too. Very good. Good morning. You can call in with your questions at 217-356-9397 or text us on the Castle Heating and Cooling text line at 351-5357. You can also email your questions at talk at wdws.com. It's important to recognize that past performance is not an indication of future results. You should not make any investment decisions without first consulting your own financial advisor and conducting your own research and due diligence. <clears throat> well, we kind of had a clunker of a jobs report, took everybody by surprise last week, and now we see a right. start of a couple of day sell-off in the stock market, just as the at least the Dow Jones Industrial Average is making new highs as of Friday, crossed above 35,000, I think a lot of people by, by surprise. Yeah. The high-tech stocks have been declining over the past week or so. Yeah, it's unusual that we're going in different directions, but now they're obviously going in the same direction. And I, we can always say it's no surprise because it isn't. But uh, we, right. we, no, we didn't predict. It, we, it's a surprise in a sense of course. today, but not that happens sometime. I try to remind everybody that it's, it's so common to have a, I would say, 10 to 15% correction most every year. And we, you know, so you can always count on getting one sometime throughout the year. Sometimes you get a couple of them. Sometimes you don't get any, but on average you get one a year. So I'm not going to make too much out of that. Makes me wonder though, if it isn't some type of the marketplace uh, trying to revolt a little bit over the uh, step up in basis issues, capital gains, increase issues, uh, and almost this distortion of the labor market that right. continues. Uh, maybe it's trying to get uh, the president's attention, saying, "Hey, you, yeah. you know, you might want to." I'm not suggesting he should or shouldn't. I'm just saying that's a look. We could we could all have our theories, right, Fred? Uh, including the president. The president said that all the money coming out to people has no impact on their work effort, which <laughs> I mean, that's just silly on its face, right? If yeah. you're getting paid more to stay home and take care of your kids than yeah. you are to go work a pretty tough job, I think it's a pretty rational decision to. I think it does has to distort, doesn't it? Sure. I would. And, and again, but it should be temporary. But um, again, how long the temporary is going to be depends upon how long they extend the payments. Yeah, I was reading an article on CNBC uh, where a guy uh, was reflecting on an article by another guy named Sam Rowe. And he's highlighting that this recovery does not have a demand issue. It's the lack of supply that continues to hold back the economy. Um Sounds like a simple observation, but demand outstripping supply seems to be, Fred, the exact opposite of how things played out after the last financial crisis, where right. we had demand issues and we had abundance of supply. Right. Uh, I think this is causing people to scratch their heads because this isn't kind of what you expect out of a recession. And supply, though, usually uh, has a way of, uh, of dealing with it. If, if prices stay up there, the, uh, there'll be more chickens and... <laughs> Gasoline will overcome the, the current situation and yeah. so on. Housing is a little different. It's going to take a lot longer to uh, upgrade the housing stock. There seems to be a strong demand for uh, single-family residences again. Yeah, it seemed like the post-great financial crisis was about too much, you know, uh, too much debt, too much housing, too much interdependence, all these things. Yeah. And uh, just 
too much. Yeah. And uh, the other thing is interesting. There just doesn't seem to be enough. I mean, right. chlorine. I mean, just I was talking to somebody who has a pool. He says, I can't even find chlorine for right. my pool. And I, it sounds like a high class problem. It is, but it's yeah. a whole point in lumber. Um, one other thing I've, I've seen a real theme, Fred, is a lot of people trying to scare people about inflation. And they're saying, well, 12, you know, year over year lumber and yeah. year over year this. But if you smooth it out and take a little longer perspective of 18, 18 months, it's really no shocks to the system. Right. And they have a way, as I, I said, they have a way of writing themselves over a period of time. It takes a little bit of <clears throat> time to get back to uh, to normal. But uh, it will. The, the other thing, which I guess I have a, more a question for you, uh, there's been a lot of discussion about uh, individual invest- investors again. It used to be that um, no one really cared much about the individual investor because they were more or less unimportant. But now with the um, you know, hot money flying around, things of that sort. I don't know if that makes more of a difference than it had in the past. Or I don't know, but but you raise an interesting point. I wanted to talk about at some point this show. Uh, Bank of America did a study just recently. Again, it was an article in the um, uh, CNBC website, and it's it cited Bank of America, as I said, and it said more money has gone into stocks from November, the five months, the last five months, beginning in November. Uh, than the prior 12 years since the 2009 bottom. And I remind people that the 2009 bottom, the S&P 500, was at 667. And during that five-month period they talked about, the S&P 500 had increased about 24%. And I stepped back and I just, you know, the the boys probably get tired of me hearing about the behavioral side of this business. But step back and let that sink in for a minute. Only after prices essentially quadrupled, did more money come in over the next five months than that prior 12-year periods yeah. where they could have bought them on deep sale? Sure. <clears throat> uh, I suspect that that's also the kind of money uh, <laughs> that goes from fear of missing out now to fear right. of being in. And the first normal garden variety correction of 15%, they'll all hit the door. Right. That's what I would expect <clears throat> out of that money. There's also, I was uh, talking to uh, Ryan before the program, there was a, a kind of... Uh, of a glowing article in, in the Wall Street Journal about how minority women are taking investments into their own hands, and that was viewed as a really great thing. But what it meant was they were not using an advisor, reading stuff online, and then going out and buying stock, <laughs> which is exactly the wrong formula. So they were empowering themselves, but probably uh, empowering in the wrong direction. Well, yeah, I always get, you know, I. I always have this theory that when people tell me they're going to do it themselves, that they can't even tell me what it is. Yeah. Um, I guess that's really common. But, of course, that's, I think that also ties in with this idea that people are finally now pouring money, money's flowing into stocks, now that stock prices have essentially quadrupled. Right. I think that we, we, we are getting a sense of that. I think we're still in the middle innings of this great secular bull market. It's just my opinion. But, I, you know, they're... There are times when it gets a little silly and a little frothy. I mean, crypto, uh, was it, Dogecoin was designed to be a joke. Yeah. Uh, and suddenly, you know, hey, change $70 million today. You know, those things usually work themselves. Yeah, I mean, it's easy. Uh, things I don't have the slightest idea about. I'm not sure about the, uh, the, the uh, images that are captured and then sold for huge amounts. Yeah, the I, NFTs. Are- I have no idea what that is even. Yeah, it strikes me like so many things in my 38 years that I'm a reasonably intelligent person and I have a financial, my brain works in a financial way. I just, I I don't dismiss them outright, but I just can't make any sense out of them. And, and, and I've told the guys at the firm, I said, look, 
you know, we will always just focus on investments that have always worked. I don't really get distracted by things that are just currently working or working big now. But, hey, there's nothing nothing harder on the planet than seeing your brother-in-law who's not as smart as you are getting rich and you're not getting rich. Yeah. So yeah, I, I understand this fear of, of missing out. But I can honestly say I haven't bought any. Personally, I haven't bought any crypto. And, okay, so people could say, well, you left money on the table. Uh, no NFTs, whatever they are, just digital assets of some sort. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, the point is, though, that there will always be someone out there that will make it easy for you if you want to do that. Some of the major firms now are starting cryptocurrency uh, uh, vehicles, things of that sort. So if, if if someone wants to do it, there's someone who will facilitate you. The, the Wall Street is no different than Dr. Jack Kevorkian. If you want to kill yourself, they'll help you. Uh, they Wall Street and the investment industry... And I think the financial media are, are all guilty of this. They pander to people's emotions. And, of course, my big theory in being a financial advisor is emotions are the undoing of, you know, the direct opposition of, of financial success. And so, yeah, they're, they're, you're going to see all kinds of things here in the next 12 months that didn't even exist. And in case another odd thing is that uh, Berkshire Hathaway, uh, Warren Buffett's uh, – business hasn't done as well as people expected. So I would argue, well, you should go back to uh, a passive way, and at least you'll get the index. But the people who are arguing say you should become even more active and do even uh, even uh, weirder things to, to get back to your old uh, old groove. There's no question. There's this, these are the types of times, in my experience, when people will start making big mistakes that really are, are permanent mistakes. They'll either get too excited about things that, Really, the only hope of doing well is if you can find a, the greater fool theory, someone that will pay you more down the road for this asset that doesn't produce anything. And, and frankly, there's really no purpose for some of these assets that are being promoted to even exist as far as I'm yeah, concerned. Yeah, another saying I read this week, there's, uh, there's no um, way to get rich quick, but there is a way to get poor quick. Mm-hmm. And the way to get – so – and the, big, the, the most reliable poor quick is to go embark on a path to get rich quick. I mean, it just, it, it's just, it's almost timeless that that's the case. The, to me, the essential problem with most investors is they look at the generous returns of, say, the mainstream equities, the, the broad stock market around the globe. The returns, given if you give it several decades, tend to be quite generous. The problem all, is mostly comes from, but I want it now. It's that I want it now and instantly is what seems to cause so much damage with investors. I always get... I don't know. I find myself, Ryan, I I get more nervous as the stock market's making all-time new highs. I don't get bearish. I don't I don't change my strategy. But we've had pretty much the best year we've ever had for for new clients. And by the way, Fred, we hit a milestone. Rudy Wealth Management crossed over three hundred million dollars under management. Oh. Um, I could prove it, Ryan. Ryan's <laughs> the <laughs> he's he, he's our uh, our regulator in charge, uh, but I countered him yesterday. I, I feel comfortable. Uh, but my point is, here we have a year in the first four or five months of the year where we've doubled our best year with with new clients coming in, and I always think oh, I hate it when I get a, a rush of new business um, when the stock market's continuously making all time highs. And what I do, and Ryan, I don't know what you're doing, is you meet with your own clients. I'm, I tend to be a little more chicken in these times. 
I tend to say, well, if they're going to be 50 or 60 or 70 or 80 percent, whatever their allocation to the great companies of America and the world are going to be, that is the stock market, I'll probably make a down payment on it, a substantial down payment on where we want to be, and then I'll, I'll dollar cost averaging over the next 12 months with a willingness um, to speed it up if we get a, a correction uh, or a, a significant decline. Uh, what what are you doing on a day-to-day basis as you're meeting? It's been interesting, Fred, to watch these young guys uh, that work for me. Um, what are you, 35? Uh, Paul's 32, David's 30, and Daniel's 28. But when they started with me six years ago, it was a different story. And <laughs> and I said, guys, don't worry. You're, you're, this youth thing it's probably working against you at first, but it eventually become, goes from a liability to an asset. But it's just been interesting as the old guy to see these fellas that have been with me for five or six years now suddenly. They really don't need dad in for these new prospective <laughs> clients. Like, hey, you're, you're welcome if you want, uh, Paul. But uh, So I've been letting them meet with more and more prospective clients on their own. Yeah, I just don't uh, tell you I have clients coming in, and then it's easier. Yeah, it, it is. And so sometimes with those clients, I lose a little bit of touch about what you're, you know, how you're dealing with freshly minted retirees at all-time mm-hmm. highs in the stock market. It, it always comes down to the e- each individual client. So there's not like a broad brush that I paint. Um, and I just look at it, and I say, well, what is the, what is the goal that we have for this client. They're wanting to retire comfortably. They would need their assets. Almost all of them need some of their own assets that they've saved up to live off of. And In that light, I'm sorry to interrupt, but is it fair to say that as you're meeting with more and more clients, maybe as much as, as half of their income is going to come from their investment portfolios? Yeah, without having any real numbers, certainly. Most Just people kind of in general. are, are going to have two forms of assets or income streams. They're going to have income coming off of their investments and social security. That's, you know. Or a pension or a big university town. Yeah. As a university town, it's different, but more and more uh, non-public employees, those in the private sector, they're not getting those private pensions anymore. They're all, they're more expensive. So the 401ks have, have taken that over. So for most people, unless of course you're, you know, university employee or similar type public servant, uh, public employed worker, uh, you're probably just going to have that, your Social Security and, and your 401k. And I'm always quick to remind folks, don't discount that Social Security check you're going to get but f- because for a lot of people, it is the significant difference between living a life that they couldn't dream of and just kind of like doing the things they thought they could because it is such a substantial um, form of income that you can receive, especially if you plan around it smartly and choosing when to claim and not taking it too early. Yeah. But going back to your first question, how am I handling it? It's, it's unique to the client. I think more often than not, I'm, I'm having the conversation with clients and explaining the, what I would call the rules of the game. If you're invested, this is what you should expect around declines. And like you brought up, 10 to 15% decline is something that you should prepare yourself mentally for every year. And although I don't know if that's coming tomorrow, six weeks, or 10 months from now, the point is that can happen, but it doesn't derail the plan because the plan accounts for these things as baked into the cake. These are going to happen. We just can't time them. Um, so more often than not, I'm not doing a dollar cost averaging in unless the client has voiced uh, various concerns on the front end. And, you know, again, it's always um, trying to make sure that I listen to the client 
beyond just trying to prescribe a medicine that's not unique to them. Would it be fair to say that you're, you might be a little heightened on making sure the expectations are set? You know, do you run them through a scenario like, look, if we if we get into your standard bear market mm-hmm. and a bear market, meaning a decline of at least 20 percent and they average about 30 percent off in the, right. in the May broad uh, stock market. Uh, you'll run them through and say, hey, if, if we get a standard issue, if we have a correction, we usually don't have much problem at all. That's just more of, hey, they might might be a little upset. They might not like it, enjoy it. They'll get used to it. But it's when you get into a bear market. And then you, you show them whether that's going to have an impact or mm-hmm. not. And then do you take them to a much larger one? Are you still going back to 2008, 2009 to really scare them? Yeah, so that I think that's kind of like what I would call, I don't know, like my you know, secret weapon <laughs> that I'm, I'm trying to arm all of my newly minted <clears throat> retirees with is we're, we're going to test prior to you actually going into retirement or very near to it what your spending level would be if no sooner do you retire today than tomorrow we see the stock market decline 30% or more. Okay. You have a kind of interesting problem because you're a fiduciary, but there's still what's called the principal agent problem. You're you're the agent for the principal, which is the investor. So you might say, well, uh, as agent, uh, I would do uh, take the person's situation and say uh, they should do what I would do in that situation which really isn't the case. It's uh, what they would do if they knew what you knew. Certainly. And, and that means that you have to have, know a lot about their uh, their uh, tastes, their fears, and so on. So it's not just one size fits all but because uh, they're not asking you to behave as, as exactly. if you were doing it for yourself. They're asking you to give them advice about how to make their uh, – allocation based on their own preferences. And, and that's a, Good couldn't be a more perfect segue for the question Paul's asking me, because what we're doing then is saying, like, listen, I'm armed with all of these factoids about the market and what to expect, but it doesn't keep you calm at night when it's, you know, 9, 10 o'clock at night and you're seeing your portfolio temporarily down because of a, a small correction or a bear market. Uh, so what I do is is to try to inoculate them from this this potential fear or concern is I'll run them through uh, a fictitious example where I take 30% or a real number from like the 2008-2009 uh, years decline and say, this is what would happen if you were living in this kind of world event today, another 50-some percent decline. And this is the direct new spending that we would have for you. Can you still live this way? How does that make you feel? And we force it kind of upon them, almost like to to put them into that mindset of, yeah, or no, I can't live on that new spending level. And for most folks, it's actually a pretty modest uh, and very uh, temporary correction. Uh, and that's simply because we're so conservative, Dr. Gertz, on the front end, that there's a lot of slack or room for uh, margin for life or like you don't have to make big changes. But from, I guess, I, what I've heard David say and what you said, you're probably more uh, aggressive than your typical client. Personally, yeah. because we're younger and we have, we have of course, Maybe let's be hopeful. Five to six decades okay. ahead of us, and we have that dual that dual benefit of of being in this business, right? right. And, and Fred, uh, I'm 61, and I I think it's fair to say that if you looked at my overall portfolio, uh, it's it's a lot closer to 100 percent than it is anything else. Equity uh, or you know great companies of America in the world, but that's after four years of studying about this stuff, 38 years of of doing research and really grasping sort of what re- reasonable expectations are as a distribution of outcomes. 
Um, but I don't think most people could handle the way I, I invest my own money because I, I, I can take a beating like no man and I'm prepared for it. And I probably worry about a global depression much more than most people. Uh, not that I think it's any more likely today than it was yesterday. It's just that that's the, if there's one scenario that can knock me out pretty good, it would be a global depression. Uh, and, and I suppose as I get closer to my 70s, someone asked me the other day, Fred, uh, you know, what, what do you think you'll do if you ever retire? I said, I think I'll always be 80% equity. I said, that to me, that seems for me the golden number. It gives me enough to kind of ride out the ugliness. It may be enough, it may not be, but it's going to be close enough where I can manage. And, uh, and, I, and I want more of my money earning the higher expected return, and I'm willing to pay the price for it. And the price is just being upset more often uh, than somebody who's maybe have a 50% allocation to equity. So it's very specific, but I do get a little bit um, chicken here. I'm just trying to get my uh, screen back up here. I think for the vast majority of retirees, that would that would be more stress than they could ever handle because they don't they don't have the the knowledge and the understanding, the deep level of understanding like you do. So of course, you know. But you know, I noticed the other day. I told David about it because it, it surprised me a little bit. I've always thought we, and I th I think we probably were years ago in my brain, closer to if I looked at all of our client base, if I look at the three hundred million dollars. Now there's a there's a pretty good dispersion, you know, so it's it's it, there can be some skewedness to it, but I would have thought we were closer to sixty percent stocks, forty percent bonds, and it turns out we're we're much closer to seventy percent. So I think it's fair to say, over the years, I've been accused by other investment folks of oh, Paul's too aggressive, but I I, I don't arbitrarily land on these numbers as Ryan's saying. It's kind of like hey, what's appropriate for what? I may have someone who's 30% stocks in the same exact situation other than they have different needs and wants than another person their same age with the same amount of money and they may be the opposite and they might be 70% stocks. But I thought it was interesting. Um, and I think, Fred, would, in your experience, pension funds, 401k plans, endowments, where do they tend to be these days? If, if you could paint with such a broad well, brush, you uh, may not be able to. To a certain extent, they... Uh uh, they're not very uh, transparent anymore. Uh, you, you can't really say 60-40 or 70-30 because there are all kinds of uh, uh, hybrids and uh, special things around that uh, may or may not be uh, a good idea. And again, uh, maybe digressing a little bit, uh, a really famous uh, investment person died this week, David Swenson at Yale. Yeah, I saw that. Yale. 67. And, uh, he and, and Jack Meyer at Harvard were kind of the, the uh, uh, poster people for uh, – using these aggressive, uh, unusual kinds of strategies, and they, at least for a time, they were highly successful. The problem is a lot of other people who tried to emulate that were not nearly as successful. So uh, again, uh, the pension funds are, are really uh, complicated now because there are all kinds of, uh, of assets. But I, would, I guess in, in, in a broad way, it would probably be like 60-40, but the 60 is not just a bunch of stocks. It's uh, not your parents' 60%, yeah, yeah. is it? Uh, so, Fred, one of the big worries, and Ryan, you're hearing it too, inflation, inflation, inflation. Um, Google Analytics reports that search intensity on the word inflation has hit an all-time high. Uh, year over year, uh, on a year-over-year -year basis, CPI, which is a, a, basically the inflation made consumer price index that most people think of when they think of inflation, 
uh, jumped to 3.6%, uh, risen at a 5.3% annual rate this year. Producer prices for finished goods have risen at 11.7% annual rate so far this year. Um, is When we see houses, lumber, used cars, copper, all these things going through the roof, is that that's fit into that CPI index, is it not? Yeah. In some format? Sure. And, and again, uh, inflation is a concern, but the, the question that we ask very often is, uh, when does it really have an effect? <clears throat> the typical question we, we have is, uh, we're running these huge deficits, how long can it go on? And the answer is, it can't go on forever, it has to come to an end, and if we don't, something bad will happen. But then the question is, when does a bad thing happen? And maybe it's five years, maybe it's 10 years. Well, it's a similar thing with inflation. We've, uh, in a sense, generated a lot of capital in terms of lowering uh, investment, uh, lowering inflation expectation over the last 40 years. So it's been a painful process in the early stages, but now uh, we have a, a, a pretty strong uh, kind of foundation that inflation is going to be pretty low on into the future. And a temporary thing like this probably is not very important, but the question is when do you weaken this long-term expectation and when the Fed and the uh, and the uh, fiscal authorities are going at it like they are now, the question is how long can that go on? And the answer is it can't go on forever, but it probably can go on for a, a good number of years. So that, that's, the, that's the issue. You and use the word expectation. It strikes me from my past uh, that inflation is very much about expectations. Sure. It's, it seems almost as much of a psychological phenomena as a real phenomena. I'm right. sure there is a there is a real component to inflation. Well, expectations are built by real things, but uh, it's, it's certainly true, and, and it's especially difficult to stop when, if the expectations are built in. Uh, so, in the late '70s, it was very difficult to uh, bring uh, or have disinflation reduce the level. And now we're getting the opposite side of that. <clears throat> you can get away with a little bit of extra inflation now without raising expectations, but eventually that's going to erode. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how people that haven't grown up or lived through a period of high inflation uh, go from a 2% inflation world to a 3 or 4 or 5 or whatever it ends yeah. up being. Um, that leads a lot of people to wonder, okay, well, how do, if, we, if we might have inflation, how do we best hedge against it? And I always circle back to mainstream equities. I mean, for the last roughly 100 years, they've earned a compounded annual rate. Everything, all your dividends and capital gains reinvested of about 10%. Inflation's been about three. So you've bested inflation by 7%. And then when you pierce that, it sort of makes sense. The 10%, you've had basically capital appreciation of about 5% a year and dividends of about, that increased at a 5% a year yeah. uh, compounded rate, uh, higher than inflation. And so that's one measure. And then I always think about Treasury inflation protected securities. But but I like to tell people that that really is a better hedge for unexpected inflation than right. expected inflation. Expected inflation is built in. So right. if there's unexpected inflation. But right now, I don't think there's a lot of built in in terms of the uh, term structure of the interest rate. The rates are yeah, still. The, yeah, uh, I mean, they're still, it's still pointing towards relatively low inflation. And something which uh, I find Hard to believe, but uh, the state of Illinois now is borrowing money, a three-year uh, borrowing for 1%. So if you ask most people, would you want to invest in the state of Illinois, they say, no way. Look at the uh, all the problems they have. They might default and so on. But people right. are, are lending money at and, 1%. And that's their vote, ultimately, yes. uh, if you really wanted the best measure of 
uh, what what society thinks of the riskiness of Illinois, they're saying not very much. Yeah, uh, I think that's probably because they have the ability to tax at any time. Um, a lot of people t- try to trend towards gold. Think of gold. It's really a kind of a mixed results with gold and inflation. Sometimes it behaves and sometimes it doesn't. So I, yeah. I, that's not one that I. Also, I it's. it's I think we talked about this last time. <clears throat> if you really want to do that, uh, buying two percent of your having two percent of your portfolio in gold is not going to get sure. you much of anything, even if it's a perfect hedge against inflation. I agree. And and to make it work, you'd have to really take a significant position, and that's going to be a, a really risky position. Yeah, I think at that point you're 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 speculating and you're you're trying to place a bet in the fact that well, if I have to do anything, right. You know, material putting more than two percent in ten, twenty, thirty, forty percent of my money into something like this, mm-hmm. then you're betting on the future of event that may or may not occur, and uh, more often than not, it probably isn't going to materialize in your favor. Yeah, so gold's not my favorite. I would say mainstream equities combined with short-term, high-quality fixed income because that can right. reprice itself quickly. And then, and then from a stock market standpoint, if history's any guide, value stocks tend to do much better under inflationary environments, but doesn't mean you have to tilt heavily towards value, but I think those are more reliable plays uh, if I had to to do that. Um, I think, was it, did you write the article about uh, preparing for later years in retirement, or was that I think that was David. David. Yeah. yeah. Um, I want to go over that a little bit. He wrote that first part of it in last well, week's News Gazette column. Um, so I thought I'd have you go through over that and kind of just remind people what that article was about what are some of the and i think i'm getting sensitive to it fred because again if you're doing something for 38 years all of a sudden your 68 year old clients are in their 90s and i have a lot of that and uh so i I get to kind of live it every day and so i'm getting more and more focused on the front end for people newly minted retirees of trying to build expectations of other issues beyond investments that we might need to think about. You want to pick a few of those and like, what are some of the most useful things for people as they're on the front end of a maybe three decade retirement or longer? Yeah, I think what what we're now kind of shifting to is away from kind of like the fundamentals of investing in retirement and kind of like the softer side of things that are equally as important, but probably less often talked about. But like, is your, is your aging in your retiree and you're in a retiree um, things that like you really need to be thinking about is is having someone who's like your advocate for caring for you financially speaking, or if you have like a, a health decline, not necessarily putting you into a, a, a like a retirement community or a facility, but someone who's there to be able to help out, help spot these changes, be someone who can also go to bat for you if you need help with something. I think for most people, they assume that their spouse, if they're married, will be able to help out. But as you're aging, you're both aging. Um, and generally having somebody who may be like a child or a, or a younger trusted person in your life um, to be able to navigate some of these things with you is one of the single best things you can do in advance. Talking with someone who could they, who could potentially fill in for you as being like a healthcare directive. Um, if they start noticing, you know, you know, Uncle Paul, for example, I've noticed you seem to be slowing down a little bit physically or speaking a little differently. Well, I did ask Matt uh, how living in Houston was yeah. <laughs> at our at your grandfather-in-law's 90th birthday party the other night. Yeah. But he, he, he lives looks in a lot like. Yeah. <laughs> but um, <laughs> this person lives in a different state, so yeah, maybe I'll have to be looking out for you. 
But I think just the, the point being here is that a lot of times we don't necessarily see the changes in our own selves that others might see. And having somebody there to try to, to guide you along this process and be a, a facilitator to potentially get you help or to step in and say, I, I need to make sure to help protect you financially speaking from making a decision that you know maybe hurts you financially. I've seen it in our own business where, where yeah. clients who have been very well uh, versed in their finances uh, let their guard down as they age and it's perfectly normal. And all of a sudden those uh, scam calls that <clears throat> you know are asking for $50 here, $100 there, turn into thousands of dollar yeah. requests and they're thinking with their heart that they're going to be able to help out this institution, and really they're they're benefiting a scammer. Yeah. Even uh, more than that, it may just be a matter of inertia. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I I have a, I've had a plan for several months now to move some uh, money from a, a traditional. 403B to a Roth 403B. I, I haven't done it yet. Right. If I could just p- p- pick up the phone and say, do Go this, do it. Yeah. it might be easier. So, again, it's, I know exactly what I want to do. I'll get it done before the end of the year. But, I'm but not that sure. inertia <laughs> takes over. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. welcome to the human race kind of takes over. Yep. Um, what I, else might people want to think about? I, I think, too, another kind of along those lines is you, you want to ideally have both spouses in the loop, financially speaking so that they're both aware of the finances. They don't have to be equally interested. That's not the point. It's just you don't want to have one spouse potentially in the dark uh, because uh, the the very real event could sh- show up where the person who's kind of the, the financial keeper of the household, which could be the, the male, could be the female. There's not one or the other. All of a sudden is in diminished capacity or passes away, leaving a spouse in a very vulnerable position who wasn't maybe well-versed in their finances knowing what to do. That adds a whole nother complication and layer of stress during an already difficult time. Is that something you should do in writing ahead of time? Uh, certainly. You could have it in writing. Uh, it could just simply be uh, that you talk over with maybe your, your wife, uh, for example. Here's where we have our investments. Here's, here's kind of the, the big goal for this. Here's where we have our checking and savings accounts. So that way you're not scrambling in a moment of need and and then maybe looping in kind of that first point, somebody else who can be there to step in and help. There seems to be a real push for simplifying things as, as we get older. I, I'm doing it myself. I, you know, I understand it because I've been watching it for 38 years. Um, there seems to be a real trend and a real value in that to people, is it not? I think the more scattered or more segmented your financial life, the more there's room for error and forgetfulness. So I, I push that in a... Just a simple way, just to say, if you've got bank accounts, for example, and you don't need to have protection, like, for example, if you have less than $250,000 in multiple accounts and checking or savings and bank accounts, you could consolidate those without being in fear that uh, you run out of the FDIC insurance uh, beyond that $250,000 limit. So for keeping life simple as you're aging, going from your 60s to 70s and 70s to 80s, Going to one bank, for example, having all of your um, checking and saving and one checking or one saving uh, to the extent you can do that and keep that FDIC insurance protection. I think, Ryan, there are actually some benefits even before the uh, uh, kind of crisis occurs. The spouse who's not in on things may be fearful about, can I support myself when my spouse dies? Are we able to do, to do all these things? And you've been telling the other spouse, look, you're going to be fine, but the uh, the uh, attenuated spouse may not actually actually know that. Sure. She, she or he, whoever it may be, may not have kind of that remedy. Now, 
from our side, if I can break away from the general conversation, we're, we're very careful to make sure that both spouses, if it's a two-couple household, are involved and are on the same page. And then, again, not everyone's equally interested, but they're, they've been given the same messaging, the same understanding and explanation um, so that there's not so much a, a giant change in power. And they so they shouldn't speak. fear that if one spouse dies, they're suddenly going to have to uh, have to go to the soup kitchen, decline in <laughs> right? Their, they're they're uh, not all of a sudden out on the street trying to to make up for lost income. Those are those are planning events that we've worked out well well in advance, usually decades in advance, knowing if there's going to be a loss of income from like a pension income stream, for example, or you get a reduced payment from Social Security. Uh, those kinds of things we've prepped in advance. For but, sure, I'm going to take a couple of questions from text, and then we'll get back to that. Um, have you looked back to see what the scenarios would have been for people with 70% in equities versus 60% equities in the year 2008-2009? Uh, really, when we think in terms like that, I mean, the short answer is not much difference. Uh, that incremental 10%, okay, it, it's a modest difference, uh, not one that overly concerns me. It's it's whether I might want to be 50% stocks versus 70 or 80. Yeah. Then it can have a meaningful impact uh, in some scenarios. And the, um, the endpoints make a lot of difference. If <laughs> I've looked at it, if, if you went back to 2009 and, and did 60-40, that would beat almost every pension fund in the world. Oh, for sure. <laughs> and if you went 70-30, you'd be killing it. But again, that's an unusual uh, time period. The, the uh, depth of a, a decline to the top of a, uh, a market expansion. Right. So, you know, like I said, you know, I'm not going to arm wrestle anybody, whether they're 60 percent equities or 70s. To me, they're almost kind of the same thing. OK, it's 70 percent stock. So you have a 10 percent larger position in something that historically has earned 10 percent. So you might say your expected return over your lifetime might be one percent more a year. But then for that, you're trading off. Uh, make sure you have the ability to handle another 10 percent of whatever that downside is. So if the stock market gets cut in half, which it has three times in my lifetime, um, you know, you're going to, you're going to fall another theoretically 5% and you just have to be cool with that. You know, which is interesting by itself because I think some of these things should relieve themselves just by the mere fact that all bear markets stop. <laughs> they always come to an end. Uh, I don't know from a regulatory capacity, I could say they always will end. But I think it's fair to assume if history is any guide, they will. A second question, this is interesting. Uh, I'm 58, and this is really in my bailiwick. <laughs> I'm 58, my wife is 48, so relatively young folks. We have, to me, we have a million dollars. It's a little blurry on my screen. I think that's what it says in a 401k. Well, first of all, congratulations. I have a million dollars in a 401k. Millionaires next door. If we start 80000 a year, how long will it last and will it grow? Well, I'm going to assume they want to, if they are unplugged now, being 58 and 48, you're probably going to have a problem. You're not always going to have a problem. But as I slice and dice all the historical, well, really, you're talking about maybe four-decade periods. I, I'm, I mainly specialize in my brain in three-decade periods. It's less than 50% chance that you're going to outrun it. I'd say it's probably closer to, a, from an historical perspective, probably a third to maybe 40% of the times you could have gotten away. And I'm assuming... You want to do that in real terms, yeah. And like you want to keep that level. <laughs> no, you start out some, there. I, some I, level of inflation. I don't think the, I don't think there's an eight percent rule, is there? <laughs> no. So things would ha you'd probably, from an historical perspective, in order to pull that off, you'd have to be entering that withdrawal phase at the 
bottom of a very nasty stock market decline. Like if you did it in August of 19 or November of 1982, uh, when the Dow bottomed actually that's when it broke a thousand for the first time it went to 777 in august of 1982 so that's where the dow was at stocks were selling at six seven eight times price earnings rate uh, trust me you probably could have gotten away with an eighty thousand dollar reel it's just not likely it's something that i'd want to go into eyes wide open um let's put it this way if you came to my office and said that's my demand i need eighty thousand here's my million dollars i'd say uh, you're going to need to go find another advisor. I, I wouldn't take on that. Even if I disclose the probability of, of failing to meet that need is quite high, I still don't, I, I don't want to be in that pressure cooker myself. So that's just the way I'm, I'm worried. Go ahead, Ryan. I think a more reasonable expectation, which is you know, based on what Dr. Gertz is kind of alluding to, there's no 8% rule, there's a 4% rule, and you can argue all day whether it's 4, 4.5, 5, 5.5. Right. Yeah. More reasonable... Um, and sustainable withdrawal amount would be around $40,000 a year. Uh, maybe chump, like picked up a little bit than that, but 40000 a year out of a million-dollar portfolio. So that's why I think you're, you're very quickly coming to, well, 80000 is about twice as much as you could sustainably take out and you know, keep that money growing. But it wouldn't be unreasonable, Ryan, to say, well, you know what? I have a very flexible spending life, so mm -hmm. I, can, I can cut my spending at a, a drop of a hat and I'm willing to, you know, spend much less if you tell me I need to, then I might be comfortable starting somebody out as high as sixty or sixty-five thousand. I don't think I've done it because I don't find people really to be as flexible as yeah, they yeah. think they are. But I can make a case for it if you have. The more flexible you are in your spending, the more that number can go beyond four, four yeah. and a half, or five percent. Fifty-eight and forty-eight is going to put some pressure on that's, Social Security and a bunch of other things. That's a big do, and then you got to deal with health care. So unless there's something, unless I'm missing something, no. If you said, well, it's inevitable we're going to inherit another million dollars in the next ten years, I might have different feelings about that. But at its yeah. purest level, that's I would say fair to say from a guideline standpoint, somewhere close to eighty percent too high. Uh, for comfort, uh, it wouldn't be a very be a nerve wracking plan. I, it was one I wouldn't want to be the author of. Let's put it that way. What about getting on the list? Getting back to what people want to do as they enter into retirement, and as we as we grow year by year, uh, what about getting on a list of a long term care facility so that you at least have options? Yeah, I think that's probably seldom known that if you are kind of thinking ahead and down the road. You absolutely need to uh, try to tour a little bit or put your names on these lists for facilities because oftentimes the, the lists are rather lengthy. So you want to start this preparation process maybe five years before you hope to even need to go into the facility. You can always get your name on and say, no, thank you, I don't need the, I don't need the room or the, the space at this time. Um, but at least your, your name is on the list and you're not at the point where all of a sudden it's crisis mode and you're out there needing a room today or yesterday um, and not being able to get into somewhere for several years because of, of you know, there's no capacity. Yeah. I heard of another uh, problem this week I never really thought about very much. There's some, uh, I don't think we have them here, but there are some retirement facilities where you make a major upfront mm -hmm. uh, payment and that guarantees you a bunch of things for your life. But the question was, what if they're insolvent? Yeah, I think that's, you know, that's a potential risk. We have clients that are in some of those, but mainly out east, uh, it turns out. Uh, you certainly want to understand the finances of that institution. I don't know how you do that and how open they are with their financials. Uh, 
but yeah, you could you. I mean, you you could certainly see a scenario where if they if the actuarial work didn't pan out very well for that institution, if it's not a major institution, and even if it's a major institution, they may have trouble. But yeah. if it's somewhat of a local development, that's one more concern that I think people at least need to dig into and understand how solid, from a financial standpoint, the reserves and the ability to handle that risk. Um, well, they're talking about higher capital gains, as we know, Dr. Gertz. Um, and Ryan, I, and I know we seem to be moving more and more to exchange-traded funds, which are basically just a different way to own stocks yeah. and bonds. Um, but I noticed that, and I knew there was a big difference between exchange-traded funds and how much capital gains they seem to kick out. I just read uh, from Morningstar, they just looked at the last three years, and they showed that equity mutual funds, so just kind of the broad uh, path, uh, paid out 50 to... Uh, long-term capital gains of about 60% and capital gains, just ordinary capital gains, a little over that, whereas stock market exchange-traded funds, you know, were yeah. like at 4 or 5%, maybe but 6%. But is that a comparison against uh, passive funds that uh, do basically the same thing? I think it's they're probably looking at the whole broad universe, but as we know, many of the uh, – exchange-traded funds are passive. So that's a good point. If you look at the broad universe of mutual funds, you're probably still, go I'm guessing you're still going to find much more active universe than exchange-traded funds, which tend to be index-oriented. Not all of them, but, but to a large extent. And again, uh, the, the differences are in, in percentage terms is uh, pretty large, uh, one basis For point sure. versus eight basis points. But Compared to what it used to be, eight basis points is zero. Right. So, I mean, it, that is one of the things people consider if they find themselves in that million-dollar income status. And, uh, of course, they never tell about which income that is. Yeah. Is it taxable income? Is it yeah. adjusted gross income? They just say income. And they find themselves now suddenly paying maybe as high as 43 or 44% yeah. capital gains. But in the case of the fees itself, I think someone figured that for a million dollars of assets, a, a passive mutual fund versus a... EFT was like two hundred dollars a year. Oh yeah, yeah. So that uh, yeah, for sure, it's not that big of a difference in that regard. And that's not what you're talking about. You're no, talking I'm just about talking about the tax efficiency standpoint. Yeah. Exchange trade traded funds do have an advantage, and we use dimensional fund advisors primarily for our clients, and they're moving more as as many companies are. They're moving more into that world. I think in anticipation to just the demand from people are just. You know, we uh, the funds we use have always because they're passive have, have low. Uh, distributions as a rule, uh, but they could probably be even better yeah. and for tax. Yeah, a good reason accounts. not to is the interday trading. If you're interested in interday trading with an EFT, you're probably not in the right place, I would guess. Right. It's like anything. It's like a shotgun. You can use it to put food on the family or you can yeah. blow yourself up with it, uh, depending on what you, you do with that. Um, I think one thing with uh, ETFs is that aside from its it, – And when we say ETFs, we mean exchange-traded exchange funds. Fund, which is essentially a mutual fund that trades intraday. It's kind of a – that's in the broadest the brush, beads. I would say that's the two difference. Exactly. So it, it it is allowing for a little bit more tax-efficient holdings in a standard taxable account. Um, but I think it's also going that way a lot more recently in the past, what, two years because of big um, – Wirehouses, brokerage firms taking costs for trading stocks and ETFs, exchange traded funds, down to zero dollars. Correct. By comparison, a lot of mutual funds have a, a trading dollar amount, whether it's twenty dollars, forty dollars per trade, 
So it's also representative of kind of seeing like the, the market change a little bit. So there's, there's like Dr. Fred said, the ability for the, the investment vehicles of the world to pander potentially. Sure. In this case, it's a good, it's a good example for investors. Yeah. But the only, not, the only, uh, this is a pretty minor downside, but you're really talking about a closed in fund. Essentially. Uh, uh, and closed in funds don't always sell at their net asset value. Correct. So there are situations where a, uh, ETF might not be able to be cashed in at what you think is the correct Especially value. in real quirky times. Yeah. You know, just, you know, just when you would most worry about that is when that could happen. So you have to investigate that a little carefully. And then other reason we're seeing this trend from mutual fund universe shrinking and exchange traded fund increasing is mutual fund companies, I think it just in the last couple of years, the law changed where they can convert a mutual fund into an exchange traded fund without selling anything and yeah. kicking out all the capital gains at once. I think that was the, the dam that burst that really is going to increase this trend. I did notice uh, kind of as a final area, I guess we're, there's a proposed bill, it's Secure 2.0. Right? Remember about a year or so ago we had Secure, the Secure Act that made some changes. But the House Ways and Means uh, Committee voted yesterday to approve Secure 2.0, now goes to the House of Representatives. It shows high earners with the greatest ability to save will get the most out of the bill's higher catch-up provisions. Now, this is what I thought was interesting. They would have a delay of required minimum distributions from, or we sometimes call them RMDs, uh, from qualified plans to age 75 by the year 2032 and the ability to apply more savings to Roth 401k accounts, which helps affluent retirees pass their 401k accounts that are tax-free. It's interesting. Victims of domestic abuse are going to be able to use uh, tax-free. You know, they don't have to pay the taxes. Uh, penalty-free, I guess I should say, uh, in order. Uh, the, uh, you know, Congress is uh, uh, more sanguine about their ability to micromanage than most of us are. Yeah, for sure. I, I'm not sure that they have a, a way of of discerning spousal abuse or whatever. Exactly. Just kind of like COVID was pretty yeah. broad envelope. Uh, it, it would increase the required minimum distribution age to 73 starting on January 1st, 2022. So that's here shortly. So we'd move from 72 current to 73 and then to age 74 starting January 1st, 2029. So there's a pretty good period between that and to 75 starting in January of 2032. Is that, do, do you think that's a precursor to maybe what they already know that Social Security uh, ages the, uh, the, the, the normal requirement uh, year, uh, full retirement, I should say, uh, right now is 67 for a lot of people and kind of just going to push that out further and further. Well, and that, that's a trying big Trying to decision. get these things kind of all yeah, I, I don't think they're that coordinated, so it might happen, but that's way, way down on the list. You don't know, <laughs> They're talking about now lowering the uh, eligibility age for Medicare, a whole bunch of things in the other direction. So... I think it probably should happen, but I don't think they're coordinating it with that way. I think it's just a matter of a lot of people having huge amounts of assets and, and qualified plans. They don't want to take it out. Okay. Uh, without further ado, then, we're going to be back in a couple of weeks. You're going to be here, Dr. Fred? Great. Yeah. Uh, I'll be back from South Carolina. Rod, you'll be back. So this is Paul Rudy for Paul Rudy's On The Money Radio Show. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in two weeks. Join us for the second and fourth Tuesday of each month for Paul Rudy's On the Money. Views expressed represent those of the guests and do not necessarily represent those of the station. This is News Talk 1400, WDWS, Champaign-Urbana.